What a privilege again it is to come together and to just enjoy one another's company together as a family. I trust all of you noticed as you were entering in this morning, there's a little difference going on here on the floor of our church building. We have, through your graciousness, been able to replace some of the carpeting here, and we're glad to do that. There'll be some more done this week. I hope that is uh, something that we can all enjoy and enjoy for a long, long time as we take care of what God has given us. I was wondering this morning as we were singing and preparing our hearts for communion time and thinking about our time in the Word of God, wouldn't it be interesting to be a fly on the wall? Have you ever thought about that? You'd be a, be a fly on the wall in some of the most integral things that have gone on in your own life and around your own life and with the things of your own life and maybe people discussing things that you wanted to be a part of, but you weren't a part of that, and you you wish you were just a fly on the wall. You probably said that to yourself, man, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall. And sometimes we get this idea that if we were flying the wall, maybe we'd hear something that we didn't know before, or we certainly would go away learning something from what took place, learning something from what happened with whoever it was involved with that, maybe We've learned the lessons by watching the lives of others in the past from a distance. I know I grew up in a home where I had three older brothers, and being the youngest of four boys, my brothers got into their fair share of difficulties through our growing up years, and I oftentimes was able to watch what they did and go, I'm not doing that. Some of the things I was too dumb as a young kid to miss and figured I'd try it myself because certainly it would come out different for me. That didn't happen. And we learn from things that have gone before us. And that's what I want us to look at this morning as we think about our time around the communion table. I want us to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have, uh, from time to time, as we celebrate our time around the communion table, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because the Apostle Paul was dealing with the church in Corinth and issues that were taking place in that church. And it was oftentimes around this very issue. And I want to begin our time this morning by just drawing our attention to verses 17 through 22 as we look into the troubles from from an outsider's look, we look into the troubles within the Corinthian church in order that we might also learn how to steer clear of those same kinds of things within our own church, the own, our own body here. And so let's just take a moment and, and, and bow before the Lord and ask Him to attend to our time, and then we'll get into this, and, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. Father, once again, we, we thank You for being here together. We thank You for this opportunity to be able to, to learn from Your Word. Lord, these are familiar words to us in many ways. We have read them many times. We have looked at them. We have, we have even studied through them in the past, and yet they're so helpful to us as we think about our own body and the own, our own church and how we interact and how we operate as a body uh, in honor to you. And so help us this morning think through these things individually, help us to process the truth that we have here that we can draw out the implications for our own lives and then begin to implement that to your glory. So we thank you for that. Bless our time in Christ's name. Amen. 
I want to uh, read for us verses 17 through 34, just because it helps us with the entire context of this passage, even though we'll discuss a little bit even about from verse 1, but I want to just read verses 17 through 34. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but in giving this instruction, implication, he had previously given him some instruction that he's talking about, says in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if you judged yourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat... Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Now the Apostle Paul had began in verse 1 of this chapter with a command. He commands them and then begins with something for which he can praise them. He says in verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. And not 15 verses later, he says, But I can't praise you for this. I praise you that you're, you've listened to me. I praise you that you, you follow after the traditions that I've said, but, but something's gone awry. 
You need to be an imitator of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. And yet there's something that has gone very, very wrong. You have listened to the doctrine that I've taught. You have, at least in word, agreed to what I have taught. And yet, here in verse 17, the Apostle Paul begins with this lengthy rebuke for things in which they will receive no praise. And it it all circles around the abuse of the Lord's table. How they are abusing communion. We know from scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ established for His bride, the church, two ordinances that we are to take place doing. There are two activities which are primarily important to God concerning our testimony as the bride of Christ to the watching world. Sometimes we get the idea that the world really isn't watching us, and yet every week we drive here, we come here from all kinds of places, our friends and our neighbors and those that live across the street or whatever see us getting up on the Sunday and going and doing whatever it is they think we're doing, and we gather here and all the neighbors on this street know that cars pull in this parking lot every week and they see us, and sometimes we come in here and we see our friends and we see our family and we interact with one another and we forget about the outside. We forget about the watching world. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ has established for us these ordinances so that the watching world sees something about the the glory and honor of Jesus Christ through His church. Through these ordinances. One of the ordinances is baptism. When someone gets saved, when someone believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ unto with faith and they repent of their sins and they come to be baptized as they ought to in obedience to Jesus Christ, that is a testimony to the watching world. We proclaim in a public fashion just what it is we believe about Jesus Christ and the world watches. And many of you invite your unsaved friends and family and they come see that and they hear that truth of the gospel. It's a testimony of who we are. It's a testimony of Jesus Christ. And the second one, though, is communion. Communion. Communion is a testimony. It is a collective body coming together collectively and proclaiming what? The Lord's death until He comes. That's what it says in verse 26. We proclaim, we are, we are heralding the truth concerning Jesus Christ and what is accomplished through His death through communion as we come together. This is why it's so important that we be together, that we, as an assembly, that we're here. You cannot proclaim together if you're not together. This is how God has designed it. And so both of these ordinances have the intent of being unifying for the church and a picture of the gospel to the watching world. Both of these testify about the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ for a spiritually dead soul. Baptism and communion. And the Apostle Paul here in in Corinth, they had a problem with this whole idea of communion and and all that revolved around it. It became this, this... 
the unifying event in the church. It became an event by which there were factions taking place, as he says in verse 19. And so we need to learn from this, because both of these ordinances speak about Christ. Both of these highlight Christ. Both proclaim Christ. And therefore, both of these ordinances given to the bride of Christ by Christ himself, both are gospel-oriented. And therefore, God takes them very seriously. These are not just willy-nilly ordinances for His church. These are very serious to God. Hence the reason that Paul begins in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to follow me in anything that isn't Christ-like. I don't want you to follow anything in me that doesn't highlight Christ. What you see in me that is following Christ, you do that. That is simply to say that exercised love toward one another, exercised edification of and to one another, those things should be the hallmark of every action that we take individually as believers with one another and every action that we take corporately as a body. Otherwise, the gospel has a tendency to be confused to others becomes confused. So our lives personally and our lives collectively as a church corporately say to others what we believe concerning Jesus Christ. This is why we have to be careful when we're by ourselves and no one else is around us how we live, not only because the Lord Jesus Christ is there and we ought to be careful, but because the world is watching us and we're not just an individual Christian. We are a Christian that's part of a body. And we reflect upon that body, no matter what it is we are doing. And so that principle is an unescapable reality for us as Christians. It's unescapable for us in the body of Christ, the church. The world is watching us. It is watching us individually. They are watching us and hearing us corporately. And the testimony is either going to highlight the truth of Christ or it's going to undermine the truth of Christ in their eyes. It will either shine positively on the gospel or it will shine negatively on the gospel. And so up to this point in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has addressed a whole host of things that were going on in the Corinthian church, right? Their personal testimony issues, really, of the believers in Corinth were having a great effect upon the corporate testimony of the church in Corinth. It was undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens. Personal testimony always affects corporate testimony. How often have we seen it in the headlines of even newspapers when a church falls apart because one person in the leadership falls apart publicly? It's very devastating, very damaging. Well, the same thing happens even in smaller ways when just some person who's part of that church begins to do things that are questionable and it's never dealt with never dealt with by the church, never dealt with because of a sin issue, and everybody in the public, everybody in the watching world goes, well, that's just what Christians do. They're just that kind of thing. 
So we have to understand this about our Christian lives. What we do as an individual Christian will have an effect upon how others view the church. Many of us have heard from unbelievers, we have heard the tongue-in-cheek statements that unbelievers make sometimes. They say things like, the church would be a great place if it wasn't for the people. Right? You ever heard somebody say that? Church would be a great place if it wasn't for the people. I've had people say to me, I've said this to us in the past, you, you probably know what I'm going to say. I've heard people say to me, I, I don't really want to go to a church, it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And in one sense, they're right. We do at times live hypocritically. We do. The church's testimony oftentimes is just a hypocritical statement about who they are. They say they love people, but they don't love one another. And yet on the other hand, I just say to them, well, one more won't matter then. Come on. Right? Everybody's living that way. So come on and hear about Jesus Christ who never was a hypocrite. Right? Don't follow us. Follow Christ. Let's just point you to Christ. This is the reality of our life, right? Churches don't have problems in the sense that the building, where people meet, that's not where the problem is. The problem is people. People are problems. And it's people who are the church. Well, some of the people in the Corinthian church had begun to abuse the Lord's Supper. They began to abuse it. They had turned the Lord's table, as we were reading, they had turned it into a to some kind of gluttonous, drunken feast. This huge feast whereby they could eat as much as they wanted without any care for anybody else and get drunk. And that's the issue that the Apostle Paul is challenging here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It had become a serious problem. The watching world was seeing those who are called Christian live in such a way that was detrimental to the gospel. And it's so serious, in fact, that Paul says in verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are even dying. That's what sleep means there. They've fallen asleep. They died. In other words, they've been so neglected, so abused through this very ordinance as how you've been doing it, that some have been physically weakened, some have been physically sickened, and some have actually gone as far as to even be dying. That's pretty serious. So if it's that serious, then the Corinthians better do something about it. And if it's that serious, then... As we're flies on the wall, or as we're looking in the window, if you will, of the church from the outside, we better learn from it so that we don't stumble in the same way. Now let me just give us some background concerning communion. We probably know all of this, but this is helpful to us just to kind of help us understand where Paul has coming from in his own mind. If we were in the church for any length of time, if we've been a Christian for any length of time, then we know that on the night of the Lord's death, the night before His death, He was up in the upper room with His disciples, and they were celebrating what had become established by God in the Old Testament as the Passover. The Passover. We read Psalm 135 this morning because of that very reason. It spoke to the Passover. The Passover meal was a significant moment in the 
early church's calendar, it was a significant moment for the nation of Israel to celebrate because the Passover was that special meal designed by God to commemorate his deliverance of Israel from Egypt, from their captivity under under the Egyptians. Remember, Israel had been captive in Egypt for more than 400 years. They had been crying out to God the whole time, even though they were uh, really in many ways, an idolatrous people. God had taken them into captivity in order to teach them lessons about who He was and that He was the true and living God, that they ought to trust Him. And He was about to deliver them from Egypt through Moses and the hand that God was doing through that in order to to deliver them. And when God finally decided to deliver them from Egypt and to bring them into the land of Canaan, which was the land of promise that he was going to give them, he began to deliver them, as you know, by a series of miraculous events that took place in Egypt that God was doing through Moses to to release them from the grip of, of the Pharaoh. There were ten plagues Ten plagues that took place, various things, rivers turning to blood, locusts, and and gnats, and frogs, and all these kinds of things that were taking place within Egypt that that were annoying, but they were not taking Pharaoh to the place where he would let God's people go. And when the final plague came, the final plague was that of killing the firstborn throughout the entire land of Egypt. We read it in Psalm 135 this morning, the firstborn of all humanity and the firstborn of all even the animal, the livestock. And so Pharaoh, upon that, upon that night, Pharaoh says to Moses, okay, take your people and go, get out of Egypt. Now, when the tenth plague came, there was only one way to escape the plague. There was only one way to not have the consequences of God's wrath through the plague to be upon you and your family, and that was by faith. The only way to escape the plague was to believe what God said He was going to do and thereby do what God said you must do in order for the death angel to not come to you and enact what God had sent him to do, and that was to take the breath out of every firstborn within Egypt that was living, animal or human. And so the only way for the children of Israel to be protected was to believe what God had told them to do what God said. They were to take the unblemished lamb, they were to kill it, they were to take the blood from the lamb, and they were to put it upon the doorpost and the lentils, so that when the death angel came, that was the sign that the death angel could pass over that house. Leave those inside to be safe. And that is what God had told them to do. They were also commanded to eat the lamb along with unleavened bread because God was going to remove them in haste. It was going to be a quick departure. Trust me on this, God said. You are going to be leaving quickly. There's no time to let the leaven do what leaven does. To let the bread rise, you need to eat unleavened bread because it's going to be a quick departure. And so they did what God said. They killed the lamb, they spread the blood, they ate the lamb, they ate the unleavened bread, and they waited. 
They believed what God said was true. The death angel came, it passed over them. And the sacrifice of the lamb and the meal, that was a visible testimony. Testimony to them and a testimony to all of Egypt around them that it was God who was delivering them out of the slavery. And thereby God instituted this Passover celebration so that they might remember God, that God is the deliverer. God is the one that you must believe. God is the one and what He said in order to be saved from His wrath. And so it is today. Even by way of Jewish tradition, even today in an Orthodox Jewish religion, you will see Jews celebrate the Passover. It's interesting, isn't it? The Jew, even still today, thousands of years later, still remember the deliverance from Egypt as their time of God saving their nation from the bondage of Egypt. And what is interesting, they completely miss what it's pointing to. They completely miss Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb. They miss the cross. Why? Why do I say that? Because on the night before Jesus' death, while the disciples were eating the Passover meal with Jesus in the upper room, here's, here's Jews doing what, what had been instituted in the Old Testament by God in order to have the Passover meal. It's that time of year. Jesus is there for that purpose. Jesus is there to die, and yet He's there to help them understand the real fullness of the Passover and what it pointed to, that it was pointing to Him. Here He is in the upper room eating the Passover meal. They're living according to the tradition that had been passed down to them. They're having this meal in remembrance of God's deliverance. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the Passover meal, the elements the bread, the cup. And He shows them what it always was. He shows them exactly what that pointed to. He shows them Himself. Verse 24, He says, this is My body. Verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. And so Jesus takes the cup, He takes the bread from the Passover meal, and He shows them the monumental and the fundamental reality of what it was. He says, this cup is my body, the bread is my body, or the cup is my blood, the bread is my body, and this is something that you are to do in remembrance of what? Me. Well, I thought it was a remembrance of God's deliverance. I thought it was God instituting that in order we might remember that He delivered us from the hand of the wicked one in Egypt, and now it was a memorial sentence for deliverance. It was a memorial command for us to remember this meal in deliverance. And here Jesus says, yes, that's true, and it always pointed to me. I'm the deliverance. I'm the deliverance. So now, when you and I, as Christians, 
When you and I, as we will do in a short order here this morning, and when every Christian throughout history, it doesn't really matter, Jew or Gentile, when we look to the point of deliverance from bondage, we don't look back to Egypt. We don't look to what God accomplished there, albeit all true and a great deliverance. What do we look back to? We look back to Calvary. We look back to the cross. The very cross that that first deliverance pointed to is the very deliverance we look back to. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was doing the night before his death. He was showing the disciples that the Passover of old pointed to what we know as communion now. The body and blood of Jesus Christ. So for the Christian, the old Passover points to the significance of the communion that Christ himself instituted, which is based upon his blood. We look back to the cross. We look back to the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that cleanses us from all sin. He is a deliverer from the wrath of God. And so communion in reality isn't just this activity. It isn't just something we come to and go through the motions. Communion is pure worship. It is worship to God. It is just as serious to us as it was to a Jew. God takes it seriously. Just as seriously as as the Jews did on that night when they were delivered from Egypt. And they said, man, if we don't do what God said, we will be killed. We need to take it that seriously. If a Jew refused to believe God on the night that they were delivered from Egypt, they too would have died. And so we find... We find gospel writers by God's divine providential care and leading referencing the very Passover meal. And every one of the Gospels, it's there. It's in the accounting. All the Gospel writers write about that very moment as Jesus is in the upper room with His disciples. And Jesus takes that Passover meal and He points to the eternal communion in His blood. And so that became then the normal celebration of the early church. A night after the Passover meal with Jesus, that's what the church began to celebrate. That's what every biblical church throughout history has celebrated. We don't don't have time really to go into all of it this morning, but all through Acts, all through through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, as the church begins to celebrate, it celebrates this kind of communion that Jesus instituted, and it, and it often it was preceded by a mealtime together. A gathering of the body as they came together as a church meal. Time together to fellowship together. In fact, Acts 2, verse 46 says this way, and day by day, continuing with one mind, in other words, they're all thinking the same way, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and a sincere heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That was church life. That's what they did. 
In fact, they only wanted to be with the church people. That's who they wanted to be with. That's who they needed to be with. That's where fellowship happened. That's where the gathering was. They were together. They would eat together and fellowship with one another. And after they would eat, they would celebrate the Lord's table. That is simply to say, all I'm trying to highlight here is the reality that true fellowship is followed by serious, sober worship. The worship of God. When we worship God in this soberness of togetherness, it's a, it's a time of self-sacrifice. It's a time of giving. It's a time really of unity together where we gather together through this the body of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ, the church, and we are sacrificing for one another. It's a time by which the world sees our public testimony about who Christ is. We don't come together because we're all naturally drawn to each other by our natural instincts of being people. All of us have little things that irritate others. All of us have things that if we, if we were to do it, to ourse- do it ourselves and, and had no uh, greater context called the body of Christ, we probably wouldn't hang out with one another much. And yet because of the body of Christ, we, we know we're a family. We're family of God. We can't just so easily stay away. We can't so easily just divorce ourselves from the family of God. We can't, we can't just arbitrarily because of minor notions and things of our own life and, and what's going on with the world around us and what's going on outside of our own family. We can't just arbitrarily say, well, I'm not going to be with the family of God for any length of time, let alone a Sunday. Acts 2.47 says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were, they were living as a body of Christ. They were interacting as a body of Christ. They're, they're doing what God has commanded of them to do as a body of Christ. And God is, that testimony is being reflected in the reality that others are coming in by the hordes because they're seeing what's happening. Like the little couple verses previous in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, describes their, their gathering together this way. They were devoting themselves to teaching. Sometimes we think, okay, yeah, the church is a place where we teach, but we forget the fact that that is, that is an example of how they interacted with the teaching. They were devoting themselves to it. They weren't being forced. They weren't being guilted into it. They weren't being uh, drawn there by someone else. No, they were devoting themselves. Why? Because they saw it as a necessity for their life. They were devoting themselves to teaching. They were fellowshipping because what you learn from the Word of God is reflected out with your interaction with one another. And I think that's where the, the meal time came included in that. They're breaking bread together. That's communion. And they were praying together. You know what saddens me as a pastor of our church? That we have prayer night every month. We have a communion, and then we have prayer night. And only a handful of people come. Only a handful of people. I think sometimes if we really believed prayer worked, we we'd fill this place up. We'd fill it up. Do we believe prayer is what God hears? 
Oh, sir, we, we, we are to pray without ceasing. We need to pray when we're by ourselves, not just with a group. But we come together as a group. The, the, the church in, in Acts was devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to teaching, devoting themselves to fellowship, devoting themselves to communion, devoting themselves to prayer. Ask yourself in your own heart, in your own Christian life, am I devoted to prayer? Am I devoted to prayer and to pray with God's people? In those corporate times, especially the corporate times where they're set aside for me to come together with God's people and pray, am I devoted to that? All of that was there when they gathered together corporately and house to house. That was the pattern. That was the pattern for corporate worship. That's not exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were abusing the communion table. Abusing it. In Corinth, they had come together for fellowship. They'd come together for the breaking of bread together. And, and they were having a, a full meal together as, as a body. And they had this full meal before their communion time. And then they would have the Lord's table, the communion time together, the Lord's Supper. But that's the key point. That's the key point. And, and, and where we, looking through the window inside to see what's going on, we can learn so much from them because they had actually defiled its very meaning. They had abused it. They had turned a celebration of God's deliverance from sin into a, a self-serving time. A time by which they could remember what God had done to a time where they said, it's all about me. When it's supposed to be all about Christ. You say, how so? Well, they followed with a self-service meal, right? They followed it with this drunken meal. I mean, look what Paul says. He said, you meet together, verse 20, you meet together isn't it to eat the Lord's table? Except in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and, and one goes hungry and another one's drunk. In other words, no one's caring about anybody else. You come together for this specific time. You have a meal before your time of celebration around Passover. So you have it set up where you have this meal first. And, and when you come together, Paul's not dictating that we have a meal first. He's just saying, this is what's going on with you. You want to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and yet before that, you're acting all about yourself? He said, that's a problem. That's a problem. They were acting with each other in a divisive kind of way. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And, and, and you know what? I believe it. Paul says, I believe it. He says, I, I've heard these stories. People are talking. People are talking about you as a church, and, and it, there's division among you, and I believe it, and there must be factions among you. There, there must be. It, it must be true. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening around the Lord's meal. You see, it's manifesting in what you do. The entire thing is a mockery of God, he says. And so, 
God begins to judge them. He says, many of you are sick, many are weak, many died. What's the heart of the problem? What's the heart of the problem? Well, verse 33 sums it up. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait. I love that. Wait. Just wait. Don't think about you. Wait for one another. It's not about you. It's not about you. What sums it up? Pure selfishness. That's all. They had a love for one another problem. That was it. How can you say, I love Jesus Christ, I love what He did for me, when it's complete sacrifice of Himself in every way, and yet before that you're saying, yeah, well, you stand behind me, I'm going first. They didn't have a, hey, let's get together problem. Oh, they got together. They got together. They could have had the sign hung outside, fellowship, church. They were getting together kind of people. They had a love problem that affected everything they did. They had a love for one another problem that affected everything, especially their communion time together. They, they were just like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. Remember Matthew chapter 15? Here's what it says. Some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus in Jerusalem and said, Hey, listen, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And, they, and he answers and he says to them, Really? Why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I love that. You want to you have a conversation with people who want to challenge the Scriptures? Ask them a question about the Scriptures. Why do your disciples not do what the tradition says? Well, answer me this riddle. Riddle me this. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of what you say is right? What do you mean? Well, here it is. For God said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that I would help you has been given to God. You say, that's okay. Why? Because you're the recipients of it. Isn't he not to honor his father and mother? That's the command. Honor your father and mother. But you say, oh, it's okay. So you violate the command of God for your own tradition. Isn't by that you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your own tradition? See, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. Isaiah was right about you. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They teach the doctrines of men as precepts. You see, the Corinthian believers weren't necessarily teaching a tradition as God's command like the Pharisees were, but they were exercising worthless worship. It was vain worship because it was all about them. They were honoring God with their lip service, but their hearts were all in it for self-service. And it manifested itself in in an unwillingness to serve others because in serving others, they weren't going to potentially get what they really wanted. 
You know what they had done? You know what part of the problem in the Corinthian church? They had formed a click group. They were a church of cliques for all the wrong reasons. Humans, we tend to gravitate towards those that are most like us, those that most think like us, those that most do things like us. And so we tend to group with those kinds of people. But in the church, true fellowship only happens. True fellowship among the body of Christ only really happens when we share with and intermingle with those who are not like us. When we serve others that we don't normally gravitate to. You see, the, the Corinthian problem wasn't that they didn't celebrate communion. They came together, they had this meal, and they did communion. It was that they celebrated communion after their unwillingness to love others who weren't like them. Notice verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. But when you come together, you may not come together for judgment, because that's what you're doing. See, you're, you're, you're just worshiping out of hypocrisy, and God judges that. God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. See, they're having meals together. They're having a church potluck. Those who had the means to bring food, they'd bring it, but they'd get there early, and they'd eat their fill first. And so when the poor, who didn't have the means to come, they'd come in, there'd be nothing left. They'd go hungry, and some were sick, some were weak, some were even dying. So it wasn't real fellowship. It was just self-service under the guise of fellowship. God hated that. It was causing divisions. It was causing schisms. That's the word, schisms, fractures. I was thinking about this the other day. Our own government has ended fracking in our country for natural gas and those kind of things. Well, the Corinthian church had plenty of fracking going on. There's all kinds of fractions going on. Yeah, a little group over here, a little group over here. Paul says, I can't praise you for that. Because you come together not for the better, you come together for the worse. Oh, man, think about that. You know it's really bad in the church. You know it's really bad in a church when the church is doing things for the worse than for the good. Instead of your worship being helpful, instead of your worship being edifying, it's destructive. Why? Because first, there are factions among you. That's not edifying. You form these little cliques. Remember in the first part of 1 Corinthians? You're saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. Some are following this guy because they like how he is. Some follow this guy because they like how he is. Paul says, I believe all that's going on because there's these divisions that go on among you. And you know what else? There must also be factions, he says among you, verse 19. Factions. It's not maybe what you think it is. It's the word for heresies in the original language. Heresies. Not heresies of false doctrine, but this is here, it's the concept of choice, really. That's the idea. It's a choice. It might be better translated even, for there must also be sects among you. S-E-C-T-S. Sects. I have to be very careful saying that word. Difficult. 
In other words, a group would have been called a, a sect who was being committed to a certain opinion or a certain belief. That's a sect. Paul says, if there are divisions, there must also be these sects among you. Why? Because that's what forms divisions. Somebody believes the opinion over here. Somebody else got the opinion over here. These opinions don't don't look at the others. They don't even want to hear the others. We've certainly seen that in our world in the last couple of years, haven't we? A lot of a lot of opinions going on. A lot of opinions that claim to be informed opinions that aren't really informed opinions, but they're certainly gathering with others who have that same opinion. In other words, it's not the truth. The Corinthians, it wasn't the truth that was bringing them together. It was a personal opinion. And that just divided everybody. And that division manifested itself in this selfish, vain worship, which actually blasphemed God in the church. Certainly, it revealed who the mature believers were, right? There must be factions among you in order that those who are approved, that is, those who are tested, those who are tested and shown worthy may have become evident among you. In other words, it it, it weeded it out. Uh, these, these, These things have weeded it out. God always uses those kinds of things to clean the church. Paul says, don't be deceived, Corinthians. Don't think you're coming together to worship God. Because when you meet together, says verse 20, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Don't don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're coming together doing what God wants. It's not. You're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper because in your eating, you take your supper first and somebody else goes hungry. Another one's over there just drinking until his heart's content. And he says, what is this you're doing? You have a house to go at your own house. You could have done all that at your own house. Don't, Don't come and do it in the church. Don't despise the church of God. And shame those who have nothing. It's interesting how Paul started this entire letter. Paul in this entire letter in chapter 1 verse 10 said this, I beseech you brothers by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same things and that there be no no more of these differences of opinion, but that you perfectly join together with the same mind and the same judgment. I want you to think all the same way. I don't want you to have identical in every way, but I want you to all be heading in the same way in your own thoughts, your own minds about the things of Christ. You ought to have the same understanding. You ought to have the same opinions about doctrine and about theology and about the things of Christ. You ought to have the same attitude. You ought to speak the same things. But instead, you come together as a group you link with your own kind, your own little group over here. You fight over everything based upon your own opinions. Whatever causes the church to fight like that? Whatever causes the church to split? You ever wonder that? What causes church splits and little factions? Well, if you are here last week for Sunday school, you'd have heard James chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your own desires that wage war against your own soul? 
You want something, but you don't get it, so you fight, you murder. That's the very reason we see what is going on in our world today. Somebody wants something, they're not getting it, so they're killing other people. Notice the cause of this in the Corinthian church. Just turn back to chapter 3 just really quickly. Again, verse 1. Brethren, I couldn't speak to you as a spiritual man. Why? As to men of flesh, not to, to babes in, as to babes in Christ. You're, you're just little, you're neophytes. That's what it is. You're newborns. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Why? Because you were not able to even receive it. And even now you're not able why? Because you're still fleshly. Well, what's the, how's that being manifest? There's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly if that's among you? And are you not walking like mere men? You're just acting out of your own selfishness. He's just saying the same thing again here in chapter 11. You're better off, the church is better off if you just stay home. You're going to have a heart full of your own selfishness to serve self. You're better off just staying home. Don't don't come here and blaspheme God. Live according to the flesh. Listen, brothers and sisters, we come together for true fellowship. We gather here as the gathering. We're not a gathering. We're the gathering. We gather here as the gathering of God, the gathering of His people. We come together to worship God. We come together to celebrate our unity in Christ. We come together for actual communion. Actual communion. That's what we celebrate on this day in our calendar. Every month comes around, we celebrate it, and we try to have our hearts set right for it. This is why I wanted to turn to this passage this morning. I wanted to just be reflective in our minds and in our hearts that this is who we are. We cannot just arbitrarily say, I'm not, I'm not going to be there. I can't celebrate this away from the gathering. I want to be with God's people. I want to be with God's people. I want to be like the man on the, on the, the stretcher when Jesus was preaching in the, in the synagogue and, the, and his friends, he wanted to be so in front of Jesus to try to see Jesus deliver him from his illness that they lowered him through the roof. And he said, listen, I need to be there. Carry me there. I'm on a sickbed. Yeah, carry me there. Wouldn't it be great to come here someday and we got, we got those who are in our midst sometimes or are ailing that they're, they're now here and maybe one's in a bed and another one's in a reclining chair in the back because they can't walk or they can't do something else or they got back problems, but they're here. They, want to be, they have to be with God's people. We've got to celebrate with God's people. We want to be together. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let us be pure in this. Let us be pure in this. And let the Holy Spirit purify the church as He desires. And I believe if we do that, if we do that, beloved, I trust that our church will not be like the Corinthian church. We will not be like that. We will be a beacon to those who watch us. And when we go out of this place as as individual Christians into the world that watches us and into the spheres of influence that we have, we will be a beacon 
about this church because we're a beacon about Christ, which this church is about, Christ. So when we come to the communion table, that's what needs to be on our heart. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ and all that He accomplished for us and how dare we ever think in ourselves that any of this in the church is about us. It's not for us. It's not about us. It's all about Christ. Every part of it. So let's think like Christ. Let's live like Christ. Let's act like Christ. Let's minister like Christ. Let's forgive each other like Christ. Let's minister to one another like Christ. So that other people see Christ and see their own sin before Christ and will turn to Christ and be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, I trust this morning that we have accomplished what you had set forth for our time this day. That even in these brief moments as we've looked at your word, that our hearts have been challenged by the truth. As we think about our own life and we think about our own condition before you, the body of Christ, and maybe how we've thought about your church, maybe in some way this has been used to edify and in other ways to challenge, even to, in us, challenge us whereby maybe a sinful pattern is being exposed and thereby being eradicated by you and your grace and mercy as we forsake it and begin to live as you would have us live for Christ. Lord, thank you for the gathering of your body. Thank you for what it accomplishes for us that could not be accomplished any other way. Thank you for sacrificing yourself that we might live. Lord, prepare our hearts as we partake of these things here in just a few moments. Prepare our hearts to live rightly, to think rightly, to interact in honor to you, all for your glory and all for the sake of the gospel. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.